Good morning. My name is Mark Cox. I'm a, I'm a friend of uh, Dr. Jennings. So he asked me to teach. I'm not a psychiatrist. My background is, is ministry. I still am a pastor in the church, and, uh, but I'm also a Navy chaplain. So I've been going back and forth between the Navy and pastoral ministry. A little bit about my background. I went to Southern, went to Andrews, went to Ozark Academy, grew up in Southern California. Uh, while I was at uh, Southern, I was a, a student missionary where I Worked in South Korea, then I traveled the world for about six months. Uh, then somehow I, I joined the Navy at age 41, if you can imagine. I had no idea how to do anything, but I, I realized I had made a change when I, when I got on my knees one night to pray, and I said, Dear Sir, and I realized that uh, I, had, I had finally been converted to the military. So... It's been it's been a lot of fun. Um, uh, God has given me a really broad background. I, uh, as a Navy chaplain, we we get to serve lots of different branches. So I've I've served in the Navy. I've served in the Coast Guard right after Katrina down in Mobile, Alabama. Um, I served uh, with the Marine for Marine Corps. Went to Afghanistan with them. I served with um, National Security Agency. Uh, one of my, my claims to fame or infamy, I'm not sure, is I was Edward Snowden's chaplain. Do you know who he was? Yeah, okay. Um, so I was there when all that happened, and uh, I had an office in a tunnel underground. It was a very interesting time. Um, then also, uh, I came back uh, here uh, into the reserves, uh, put my daughter through college here. Uh, then I got bored and I said, uh, I want to go back. So I, I was with the Navy Special Forces down in Stennis, Mississippi for a couple of years. And <clears throat> all that to say that God has given me a rich and interesting background. Hopefully all that experience has paid off. Uh, <clears throat> Tim and I really didn't know each other, but we were um, classmates in, at Southern. We kind of crossed paths here and there. But I really got acquainted with Tim about 10 years ago. Uh, and when I read some of his books and I go, something's happening here, twisting my mind a little bit and challenging my thoughts. And it really has done a complete uh, uh, turnaround of my paradigm of understanding God and, and his law. Design laws become a very important principle. Even in the military, when I'm dealing with a pluralistic environment, teaching, um, all different kinds of ideologies, whether you're an atheist or a Christian, or a, it doesn't matter because you can, you can still benefit from understanding God's law even without necessarily having a faith or understanding in God. Um, so all those things have, have been a rich background for me, and Tim, is, uh, uh, the ministry here, has, has had a, a really big impact on, on me. So we've been uh, studying this quarter, managing for the master till he comes, and uh, we're doing lesson nine today, beware of covetousness. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, start our, our lesson. Heavenly Father, as we come together today, we'd ask for your presence to be here, and that your Holy Spirit will work through the teacher and the listener, and uh, that we will all grow and be enlightened through our, our conversation and we'll come to know you better and uh, your ways, your principles, and your methods, and uh, how you are, are working to redeem, to save, to heal, and to restore. In your holy name, amen. So our memory verse this morning is in Luke twelve fifteen. It says, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So what do you hear there? Take heed and beware. It's a warning, right? Nothing good comes from coveting. What else do you hear in the, in the, in the memory text? Nothing good comes from coveting. Beware, be warned. What else do you see in the text? By the way, is it up there? No, it's not. For life, it says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. What do you hear in that section? That part of the verse. Things aren't important. Say again. Things aren't important. What, but, but it's implying that something else is important. It's not really saying it, but life consists of something more than. So the meaning of life, the purpose of life, is more than what we need, want, or having what we need, want, and desire. 
You notice how those things change? What we need, wants, and desire? Yes, Russell? It's a contrast between the values of the world, which I remember when I was growing up in the 80s, there was a, a poster, a theme that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> that? Mm. Uh, implying that the more stuff you accumulated, the more sports cars, the more uh, jewelry, the more furs, houses, vacation, whatever. Yeah, yeah but the more women you uh, acquire, you, you die with that and you win. Yeah. That's the way of the world. Uh, the contrast between God's government with the last shall be first uh, and, the, and the first shall serve uh, is, is complete, is antithetical to the accumulation of wealth and, and power and riches and harems and et cetera, et cetera. It, it, we, we have certainly created two different value systems and the, and the, the value system of the world is, is really about having stuff, wealth. Power, position, possessions. Why is that so, such a big deal for us? Because whoever has the most? Brian? Because we, we watched people trade that for misleading all the rest of us the last few years. <laughs> well, there's big evidence. You know, um, as we get closer to the time, there's going to be a polarization. People are going to see it. And we're going to see a big division between two different ways of operating, two different modes of operating. And we're certainly seeing that today a lot. Yes, Art. Is there something from a spiritual standpoint that if we do have um, an abundance of, gives us the desires of our hearts? Is there something there? So, so he said, if, if, um, if I have abundance, will I have the desires of my heart? So in other words, the question is, if I have all that I need, want, and desire, should I be satisfied? Should that give me meaning in life? Is that kind of what you're asking? Just saying that if we have the Spirit of God in our heart, oh, okay. driving us and directing us, filling us and fulfilling us, uh-huh. then that is the abundance of life. Yeah, yeah I, um, The reason why I'm hesitating, because... You're, you're, what, we're, what we're recognizing is that what we need, want, and desire changes depending upon what's happening inside of our hearts. Uh, I notice that as I grow older, my needs, wants, and desires change. And I also notice that uh, different levels of maturity, your needs, wants, and desires change. I also notice that um, as I take on particular roles in life, my needs, wants, and desires change. Being a, being a chaplain and a pastor, I noticed that I realized I can't even think that way. I can't even do that. I can't have that, you know, just because of my role. So my, my, my identity uh, has made what I need, want, and desire has changed. So what you're talking about is, is if I have Jesus in my heart, you know, all my needs, wants, and desires are met. Or is it that God gives me perspective about things? We learn to be content with what God has given us with our circumstances instead of having been driven. And this is the difference is, you know, whether we're driven by our needs, wants, and desires or by that what life consists of, something more important, some meaning in life. How many here have ever written a mission statement? Anybody else? Yeah, that's really good. Stephen Covey in his book, uh, Seven Habs of Highly Effective People, a great beginner's guide. Um, He says that uh, about only 1% of the world will ever sit down and write, he says, a mission statement. To me, a mission statement, because of my military background, is about accomplishing something. I would prefer a purpose statement, which says, why does something exist? And why do you exist? What's the meaning of your existence, um, the meaning of your life. And so this idea of a purpose statement, uh, anybody have a, a, something they would like to share from their sense of purpose in life? In the back? Uh, we never um, achieve our desire to be like Jesus. Yeah. So the, the, the purpose is to continue to grow. Uh-huh. And to continue to learn from life's experiences and continue to improve. This is life eternal that we might know 
God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so I can't think of, I mean, my, by the way, I started writing mine about 25, 30, maybe longer uh, years ago, and it has evolved and over time, and, um, and I, encourage, I encourage you, if you don't have one, start, because it gives you the sense of why I wake up in the morning, and knowing God, I can't think of anything more important or meaningful and purpose in life. You know, the Japanese have a word called ikigai, which means the reason I get up every morning. Or the French, my French is no good, but raison d'etre, which means uh, the reason I exist uh, Christians ought to have more than anybody a sense of why you exist, your purpose in life. I can't think of anything better than for suicide prevention is to say this is why I'm here, <laughs> um, is this is the meaning of my life. And taking time to thoughtfully write that out and constantly sharpen it uh, has been one of my own personal experiences. Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't believe it's a, it's a self-help thing. I think it's a meaningful journey in coming to know God and live in harmony with him. Anybody have a definition of coveting? Because we talk about needs, wants, and desires, very normal human thing, and talk about the differences of what's in our heart determines what we need, wants, and want, and desire. But what is coveting? Wanting something that's not yours. Wanting something that is not yours, or? Would it be like... Kind of like he said, like the law of worship, like we're thinking about this one thing so much that it like fully encapsulates our being and our thinking and everything kind of go towards that. Obsession with, with what we need, want, and desire, assuming that we know what we need, want, and desire is really a good idea. And this is learning to be content with what God gives us. Sometimes I pray a prayer, Lord, help me to be who you want me to be, go where you want me to go, and to have what you want me to have. Just figure it out. You know, but uh, yes, thank you, uh, Kristen. Um, so the, uh, wanting something that's not ours, um, obsession with something, Lori? I think it's, is it Paul that recognized? I can't remember who recognized that the 10th commandment huh. is not behavior related. It's a reflection of, of what's in the heart and what the heart motives and what's operating in the mind. Which is interesting, huh? This is a very interesting uh, thing that, that Lori's brought out. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, or husband, and, um, male servant, me, uh, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that they have. Don't covet these things. This is, a, this is not talking about a particular behavior. This is talking about something, our, our thoughts and emotions. Is that a good uh, summary, Lori? And, and, and that makes this a very dangerous thing, because who's going to know, right? I mean... Who's going to know? I don't know. I mean, what you're thinking and feeling. Um, Even Paul didn't know. He, it, was the, it was the reading and comparing of the commandment that, that awakened the, the knowledge that covetousness was in his heart. Yes. And, uh, the diagnostic tool. Very good. In fact, I would encourage a reading uh, in The Remedy. The Remedy does a very nice job of going through uh, Romans chapter 7 and 8 dealing with this really good. In fact, let me quote here just from the Remedy, uh, chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, just a brief section here. Um, by the way, Dean, and I, I'm learning notes. He may get them up there or not, but uh, I, I presented him with 23 pages of notes and 23 <laughs> quotes. I think I did Tim, but uh, that's just for study. I don't really actually believe we'll go through all that today. But... Um, so in you know, Romans chapter 7, it says, uh, I would not have known what evil and selfishness looked like if it wasn't for the diagnostic e- efficacy of the law. I would not have realized that coveting was evil and selfish if the law didn't say, don't covet. But selfishness taking advantage of the fact that the law is only a diagnostic instrument and not a remedy magnified every covetous desire within me. For apart from the diagnostic ability of the law, sin is unrecognizable. Once I thought I was healthy and free from the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness, but then the commandment examined me and exposed how utterly infected I was and diagnosed me as terminal. You remember the story of the rich young ruler 
how he says, I keep all the commandments, right? You think he, do you think he kept the 10th commandment? It's interesting that Jesus says, you're missing one thing. And this is where we might go to the great commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the Ten Commandments, are they the same thing? Everybody says, well, the Ten Commandments are the the, uh, delineation of the three commandments. I would say they'd operate differently. I would say the, the the great commandment is the law of love. And the Ten Commandments are given because sin came into the world and we're just a bunch of moral idiots and we have to be told, don't do that. Don't do that. It's dangerous. So these keep us from destructive behaviors. And that's the value of that. If you ever went into a restaurant and uh, on the mirror it says, please wash your hands. All employees must wash your hands before you go back out and work. Why do you have to say that? Well, because there's a problem. <laughs> those, those, young, those young kids who work in restaurants, if they don't wash their hands, what will happen? There's an, a cause to effect, right? They might contaminate food. Uh, the person gets sick. They sue the restaurant. The restaurant owner loses his business. You lose your job. Your kids go hungry, etc., etc., etc. So you have to say, don't forget to wash your hands. And so the Ten Commandments function in that kind of way. Do the Ten Commandments save us? No. No, they're not a remedy. They are a diagnostic tool. But to know also from the Great Commandment that we need to love God, that's what Jesus so gently pointed out to the rich young ruler. Sell all you have and come and follow me. And that makes a big difference in his thinking. In fact, God, Jesus did him a favor made him go home and think about something he probably didn't even know about. Pointed out something in his heart he didn't even realize, which Paul points out here in Romans 7 and 8. Um, I like, um, you don't have to put this up, Dean, but if you go to Tim's book, uh, the Could It Be This Simple, he has those, those uh, diagrams of the hierarchy of the mind, the, the endowments of the mind. I think he does, there we go. So this is, uh, this is a very useful tool. I use it a lot in my counseling as a Navy chaplain, understanding how somebody's using those endowments, whether that, whether, uh, that, endow- those, that uh, model is turned upside down in the second hierarchy. We see uh, how uh, sensualism, materialism, and egotism, when that comes in, it completely reverses the reasoning process. In fact, you can't even communicate with that person if you're thinking the other way. Do we see that in the world today? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you, you, you talk to the different generations or these different mind, mindsets, these different ideologies today, they can't even communicate. Well, we all have good intentions. Yeah, but one says it doesn't matter how I get there. As long as I win, I win. doesn't matter who I have to you know, lie to, cheat, kill, whatever, to get there. But when we understand the way God operates and the way our mind is supposed to have higher reasoning skills, uh, based upon principles, uh, our conscience speaking to us, we have a different process to getting to our goals, to our to our fulfilling our our mission and our purpose in life. So I really like uh, Tim's because it shows how when we are infected with selfishness and sin, it messes up our ability to reason and think. Um, I think of Nebuchadnezzar, a uh, great. He, he, do you know he, he's the only. Old Testament writer who's not a Jew. I think that's right. And he writes the entire chapter of Daniel chapter 4. Fantastic chapter. And it goes through how uh, Daniel warns him. God warns him through Daniel. Don't let this go to your head. But he lets it go to his head. And he becomes a lunatic. He literally uh, roams around the fields and the forest for seven years. And he loses his mind. But it says that when he looks up, his understanding is restored, and then his reasoning is restored. It's only when that hierarchy is in its proper order and we recognize, acknowledge a sovereign God um, uh, that we are created in his image and that we are to live in harmony with his law. That changes the way we think and the way we operate in the world. We're, we're going to see more and more of that polarization happening um, I could, uh, being a Navy chaplain, I could talk politics and that stuff all day, but I want to stay on target, so we'll do that.
Um, I do want to share with you something that has helped me. Um, Dean, there's a, there's a passage, uh, Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7. That will just kind of summarize and then give me something to talk to. Um, it says, uh, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, giving, for, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sins. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity upon the fathers, upon the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this is, this is a very interesting little tri- trilogy, I guess you might say. Sin or sins, I'm going to use it, sins as in plural, and um, transgression and iniquity. It has helped me, and so I'm just sharing this with you as a, a model that maybe will help you to understand some of the different uh, dimensions, different dynamics of sin in the human condition. One is sin in, in terms of fear and selfishness in the character. Um, um, our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. These are moral failures. Moral has to do with character. Moral failures, my, my habits and my behaviors. Transgression is uniquely different in that this is fear and selfishness in our relationships. This is a violation of trust in our relationships. And uh, interestingly enough, if you think of love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind, so love your neighbor as yourself, these are relationships. You can violate the trust with God. In fact, there are examples in the Bible of the importance of the trust between God and some of his leaders like Elijah and Moses and you and me. And uh, a violation of trust with our relationships, with our family and friends and community and our strangers, even our enemies. And there's, we can even lie to ourselves. Is that right? Oh, so we can violate that interesting relationship. Um, so when we think of transgression, it's the violation of trust. If I'm always lying to myself, I can't even trust myself. <laughs> you know, there's... Um, um, yeah, this, this, goes, this goes back to, anybody here ever read Catcher in the Rye? Oh, my goodness. So I, you know, that, a lot of movies have been made on the, the book Catcher in the Rye. A lot of uh, uh, conspiracy theorists read that. Um, but if you, I, I didn't, I tried to read it because of trying to figure out what it was. But, but the book, uh, the summary of the book has always captured my attention. It says, it is the random thoughts of wayward youth. Literally, no direction, no sense of purpose, no sense of mission, no sense of structure or principles that govern their life, completely random and, and awkward. So the idea of um, transgression to ourself creates chaos inside of us. We're living purely by the seat of our pants. But that's, that's a little bit too focused in there. Iniquity. What is iniquity? This is fear and selfishness in our communities or our societies or our way of life. Think of it as a group of people to where uh, there's abundance of wickedness. And this is going to play out hopefully in our talk should we get far enough down the, there. But the abundance of wickedness to where the, there, there's no room for good. There's no room for good because wickedness abounds. Crooked becomes normal. Bent is the new straight. It's just, that's the way things are. And we talk about uh, Jericho, the wicked city of Jericho. I want you to be thinking about that's iniquity abounds that everything in society, the entire economy, the entire way of life, the entire value system is iniquity when sin abounds so greatly. So think of those three distinctions as we talk today because we're going to see moral failures. We're going to see transgressions. And we're going to see iniquity abounding. I was scared you'd be here, Mike. It's good to see you. <laughs> uh, Mark, the, um, the three words used in Exodus 34-7 are exactly the three chosen in Daniel 9, 24, hmm. you know, for the 70 weeks, the, the work of Christ at the end of the 490 years on the cross. So whatever is God's character, they're defined in Exodus 34. Hmm becomes atonement activity yes. at the end of the 70 weeks. It's the exact three words. So he's deliberately going back to Exodus 34 to speak of what Jesus would accomplish for us. Uh-huh. The reversal of all that, yeah. 
my friend Mike, we, we were pastors together, first time in Memphis, Tennessee, years ago. Uh, he was with one church, and I was with the better church, I think it was. <laughs> so, but uh, no, Mike points out what I, I passed over in the text in Exodus is that the Lord, and this is going to be important because we're, as we're going to get into this passage today, the first part of this text is very important. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sins. This is God's graciousness and long-suffering and mercy towards us. The character of God's love is going to be an important revelation in the last days. Um, Now, so in doing our lesson today, it's about four stories. Five different characters, but four stories. <clears throat> Lucifer, Achan, Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira. In fact, Patriarchs and Prophets actually groups these four together. So somebody's picking them out. There's lots of covetousness in the Bible. There's lots of destruction and disaster in the Bible from coveting. But for some reason, these particular four are picked out. Patriarchs and Prophets 496 says, We are warned we cannot serve God and mammon. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Let it not be once named among you. We have, the, we have before us the fearful doom of Achan, and of Judas, of Ananias, and Sapphira. Back of all of these, we have that of Lucifer, the son of the morning, who coveting a higher state forfeited forever the brightness and bliss of heaven. And yet, notwithstanding all of these warnings, covetousness abounds. What's interesting about these stories is they all have tragic endings. There's no good ending in any of these stories, which I was wondering why Tim gave me this very difficult, very downer, you know, subject. How am I going to find the gospel in this? All right. So as we look at these four stories, none of them having happy endings. Um, Where's the gospel story here? Where's the good news? Anybody have a thought? I heard in and I So so Lucifer, Lucifer. Judas, okay. Achan. Achan, missed him, Ananias and Sapphira. So Lucifer coveting in heaven. Achan, after the Battle of Jericho, covets the Babylonian robe, some silver and gold. Uh, Judas covets money and sells, of course, Christ or uh, 30 pieces of silver. And then um, Ananias and Sapphira sell some property, and they promise to give that to the church. And when they come and they hold back some, they have sudden death. I don't think there was a COVID vaccine back in those days, but sudden death. (laughs) Sudden death. See, I'm getting political already. Comes out. So, but those are the four stories. So where is, where is, uh, did I see Lori saying? Okay, so where is the gospel? Nobody wants to take that on, huh? <laughs> we believe things are in the scripture to teach us about the character of God. Yes, okay. So that's so, question. What does it show us about? What does this tell us about the character of God? Yes, okay, very good. Um, I love Christ's object lessons, the book. It says, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. That's, that's going to be so important in a world that, uh, you know, people are confused about God. I, in the military, people, I hear it all the time, the, I mean, the swearing every day. The Marine Corps, I love the Marines. But, uh, but there's a lot of animosity towards God. Yeah, sir, I don't know your name. Mine's Dan. 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 Uh, I see in each of those stories the long-suffering of God, mm-hmm. um, which... It gives me hope and encourages me to, when I'm following in the same paths that each of those people did, I I can get encouraged. And um, I guess just seeing the long-suffering of God is um, it's an encouragement. Yes, very good. Thank you. Russell. You can also see... Uh, God's love, the law of liberty, the mm-hmm. law uh, of, you know, it, 
Lucifer's example, if rightly understood, if Lucifer was given every, to him, so no other created being was shown God's character of love. What, what more could God have done? Lucifer chose his path and God let him go. Same thing with Achan. They were, they were, they were calling for people that, that had, that someone has, someone has sinned that, that caused this, uh, this loss of the battle at Ai. Uh, what has happened? And it, they were drawing lots numerous times for Achan to step up and say, look, I, I did this. I repent. He, he held out until the very, until there was, there was no, uh, there's no way for him to, to hide anymore. Same thing with Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. And Judas, Judas walked with Christ for three plus years. Uh, he, he, he got, Christ was God himself on earth. What more could Christ have done? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you, see the, you see the law of liberty and the law of love letting people go to reap their own consequences. The law of, of, of uh, sowing and reaping is shown as well. Very good. It, we, we, what, we, what this really drives home, this lesson drives home, is that becoming religious or becoming a Christian is not a fantasy or superstition. This is, has real-life consequences. And the message of the gospel has real-world, real-life consequences. It, it matters if we're sharing the gospel, because if you don't share, somebody might be lost. It matters if you wander away from the gospel and become habitual and hard-hearted towards it, there's real consequences. Uh, and uh, so we, when it talks about helping us see God better, helping us see ourselves better and, and the reality of our existence, it matters what we think. It matters what we do. There's, there's real consequences. I'm going to get Dan and then come over here. I was also thinking about design law. Yeah. With um, Lucifer, Ellen White I think in the Spirit of Prophecy talks about Lucifer after he's already tried to turn other angels away, he comes he comes to a point back to to God, to the Father or to Christ and says, I want to come back. And um, basically I, I think I'm just kinda of paraphrasing here, but it's too late. It's um there's been something that's changed in Lucifer that huh. cannot be touched again. Huh. There's no second chance for Lucifer. Does it? Do you remember what what um, uh, Desire of Ages says about that? It says that he rebels in the full light of the glory of God. Full light of the glory of God. Uh, I don't think any of us have that opportunity. Mike, I heard you. Yeah, I was just thinking. Um, yeah, he knew his character. Yeah. So therefore, he had. There's no more revelation no, possible. Can't reveal anything else. Brings the question to mind: Did he know that Christ would come and condescend to die to save his, save his creation, and to know the fullness mm. of his character that had to have been revealed to him? Yeah. So the future was probably unfolded before Lucifer could see that the, the, the he knew the course it would bring, and in light of that, he sinned and chose to bring the Godhead down. What can you do for a being like that? There's no more yeah. way out. Um, but, you know, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 70, I'm paraphrasing. Sister White says that at the cross it was demonstrated that the deity had sufficient capacity to exercise self-renouncing love. That was not clear to Adam and Eve in the beginning, mm-hmm. nor is it clear to us mm-hmm. until it dawns on us in life. And, but people who have that same knowledge and revelation eternal on God, there's nothing more. Hebrews says that once you've received that kind of illumination, there's no more sacrifice for sins, you're done. So he was warning the group in the book of Ephesians, uh, Hebrews, not to go down the same road as Lucifer. Because he really starts the book by warning of what the angels did. So it's possible that we can do the same thing if given the same kind of revelation of God's character and the cross and then turn our back on it. You know? Thank you, Mike. Don't get too far ahead of me, but thank you. I, I, I skipped you over there. I'm sorry. These stories for us today, like Aiken and Ananias and Sapphira, it shows us how God wants us so bad, you know, be in relationship, and how far we can fall, even though we're 
so supposedly Christians or whatever, and how we can be so deceived. And yet he's, he's so gracious in that he warns us mm-hmm. by these stories of, of the deceitfulness of sin. That or, or we believe the we can get away with destructive it. nature of sin. I mean, you, yeah. it just, yeah. we've, we've got to take this seriously because we've got to search our hearts uh, because, you know, coveting is in the heart, as Lloyd pointed out. This is a, this is, no, no one's going to know what's going on in here. You guys could all be coveting right now, and I wouldn't know it. Yeah. yeah we're coveting your shoes. Co- my shoes, that's it. You like those. Nobody likes me wearing these shoes. No. <laughs> so in our healing metaphor, which we use in this, in this class quite a bit, um, the good physician, God the good physician, he intervenes on behalf of, um, in, you know, sinful man's human condition. He diagnoses the human condition, helps us see what's wrong with us so that we can be, accept the remedy. But what if the remedy is constantly and continually rejected and the carnal heart no longer restrained, Satan has full access, then we have been so long infected, which Mike and others here have been describing, um, this infection to where it becomes incurable. Now, when I think that all things are possible with God, it's a difficult concept to accept that, that I can become incurable. God can't save me. Can God save me? Of course he can. But where's the problem? Not against your will. He won't force you into heaven, will he? No, so we, have, we, have, uh, we see the last resort. What's the last resort? If you're, you know, we've seen this, uh, the good and bad news of surgery. Sir, we can save your life, but it's going to cost your leg. We're going to have to take your leg, but we can save your life. And that's, I think that's where this story, if we take our motif or metaphor to its end, we see God, the good physician, working constantly, constantly to try to save with the remedy. But when the remedy is rejected and we get to the point where the only thing, the last resort is that surgery is required and we have to cut the leg off in order to save the body. There is a passage in Great Controversy, page 36. Dean, if, I don't know if you can get that up there or not, but I really like this passage um, that really emphasizes this point. It says, We cannot know how much we owe to Christ for the peace and protection which we enjoy. Can you, can you imagine if the presence of God wasn't with us right now? Can you, just the presence of God restrains evil. God's presence in this world. So when you think your prayers don't matter, think of if everybody stopped praying for the presence of God and God's presence was withdrawn from the earth. So we have no idea how valuable and important God's presence is. So when, when this opening line says, we cannot know how much we owe to Christ for the peace and protection which we enjoy, keeps Satan away. It is the restraining power of God that prevents mankind from passing fully under the control of Satan. God does not stand towards the sinner as the executioner of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejecter of his mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown. Every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God is, is a, a seed sown which yields its unfailing harvest. The Spirit of God, persistently resisted, is at last withdrawn from the sinner, and then there is left no power to control the evil passions of the soul and no protection from the malice and enmity of Satan. When God is resisted, well, you know, there's, I think we'll get down to it, but, but um, by the way, Tim has some great blogs on the consuming fire of God and also on the, um, the wrath of God, this idea that, that we interpret God's wrath as an, an infliction, but really we see it is the withdrawal of his protection. And who comes into that vacuum? The God of this world, Satan, the God of the air, 
and he wreaks havoc, havoc on the unrestrained carnal heart and the unrestrained society that um, we see. And so the importance of God's presence is so important in our lives. We have no idea how much we owe to Christ just for his presence. So let's get into Sunday. I like Tim always takes a whole class to get to Sunday, but we've kind of been skirting over the whole thing anyway. Um, this, this is a valuable, so for my own particular framing of reality, uh, which helps me every day because I am always have a, a sense of reality that says there's a cosmic view out there. I understand that there's a war that began in heaven, that there are unfallen worlds in the universe, that even right now, as you and I sit here today, if we believe what the scriptures say, there are angels among us. We can't see them. They're invisible. Guess what? If we, live, if we believe Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's story, he says there are watchers among us. Who are the watchers? I would, I would suggest that these are characters from the unfallen worlds. They're here watching us in what role we play in the great controversy. I can't think of a, a more meaningful existence to know that what I do and say today, how I live privately or, or publicly matters to those who are watching to the worlds beyond. And there's, there's a great line. Um, she says it about 10 different times, but she talks about the vibrations that when the Holy Spirit works in us, that the vibrations, uh, the uh, invisible strings are plucked. Maybe believe in string theory, Brian. The invisible strings are plucked and that vibration is felt throughout the universe. What a, what a cosmic view. I mean, when you realize, so to me, framing reality, I start with a cosmic view of things. And then I also need a worldview. So I frame my reality from a worldview that I understand um, that I'm not the only person that exists. There are other people in the world, not just me. There are other nations and cultures, and, and there's a world going on. In fact, that has really helped me more than anything to understand what's been going on these last three years. It's to keep in mind there's a big picture going on here. Uh, sometime later, we'll talk about uh, some of the my politics and, and my fighting against uh, these um, things. Uh, I'm one of 42 chaplains who are in litigation with the Secretary of Defense over mandates. But it's, I, I only knew to do that because I understood the cosmic view. I knew Satan was doing something. I knew if we didn't resist at certain levels, if we don't speak out, that these things will continue to folding around us. Um, you're familiar with, uh, I call it, I call it uh, that's my coffee uh, paradigm. I tell this to, the, to my sailors to try to help them understand the importance of why we do what we do in war, such as uh, fly planes and boats around the Chinese islands that they're making over there, you know. You know why we do that? They say, well, this is our, now our territory because we have the islands here. And what do we do? We put a boat through there fly an airplane through there or a submarine because we're saying, no, it isn't. <laughs> so I use the, that's my coffee metaphor or illustration. Um, if I were to come into your place of work and you just made yourself a nice hot cup of coffee and um, you set it down there, you hadn't even taken a sip of it. And I walk in, I'm a ranking officer. I'm a chaplain on top of that. I have some clout and I come over and I take your cup of coffee Whose cup of coffee is it? Yours. <laughs> Somebody says it's yours. Anybody else ha- disagree? No. Somebody else says, no, that's my coffee. No. In the military, it's going to be yours. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually uh, that's what they want you to think. That's what the structure wants you to conform to thinking that you sign away all your human rights, etc. That's not true. So if you don't say, that's my coffee, guess what? You legitimize it. My taking a coffee. So now it is my coffee. So every morning I come in and I take your coffee, and everybody else is looking around and says, Isn't that nice of Brian to make the chaplain coffee every morning? <laughs> you know? But that's not what's happening. I'm actually stealing this coffee, and you've legitimized me taking it. Every day you allow me to violate your life. And this is, this is why, in my opinion, the Bible says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's why we have to resist him in those areas. So anyhow, 
the, the worldview, we play a role in the worldview as much as we do as the cosmic view. But then if you know there's the war in heaven, there's the war on earth, there's also a war in the soul view, if you will, in our hearts. We're struggling. This is where covetousness really comes to play. We see that losing our, we don't want to violate the soul. We don't want to lose control of what God has given us, instilled in us. And so it's either God's going to rule our heart or Satan's going to rule our heart. Those two different principles. And so the more we give to Satan, the more he takes from us, the more he dominates us, and the more he wants to rule our lives, and the more we start seeing covetousness taking hold to where it's incurable, unpardonable, impossible to resolve. And that's, um, I don't know if that helps, but that's why I like this particular perspective, is we see a cosmic view. We see Lucifer in heaven, and um, the Revelation chapter 12 says, and, there, and war broke out in heaven. And we're, I like the, the idea of the polemi, a political war, an argument war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragons. It wasn't some sort of, you know, M16s and cannons and swords and stuff. This was a political war, very much like what we're seeing happen here on earth today. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was their place found for them in the heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Um, Lucifer, this is in um, Why Was Sin Permitted, the the very opening introduction of um, Patriarchs and Prophets. Uh, it says, not content with his, high p- with his position, though honored above the heavenly host. Notice all these characters usually have a really advantageous situation. All of them, but they want more. It's very difficult for a rich man to go to heaven, Jesus says. Not impossible, but very difficult because of the temptation of coveting. Uh, he ventured to covet homage due to the creator instead of seeking to make God supreme in the affections and allegiance of all created beings. It was the, his endeavor to secure his, their service and loyalty to himself and coveting the glory which was the infinite father had invested in his son. This prince of angels aspired to power that was the prerogative of Christ alone. And this paragraph, I think, gets to our gospel message. Uh, our sister was talking about the a revelation of the character of God in these very dark stories. How does God handle the surgery? What are his methods and principles getting to the point where surgery is necessary? And, of course, the scope of the great controversy has yet to be realized, uh, the, the damage that will be done. But this particular uh, paragraph in Great Controversy, uh, page 495, I don't know if you've got that one, Dean. It's a pretty good one. <sighs> God, in his great mercy, bore long with Lucifer. This wasn't just some, you know, you you break the rules, you get cast out. No, this was a long suffering. He was not immediately degraded from the exalted station when he first indulged the spirit of discontent, nor even when he began to present his false claims before the loyal angels. Long was he retained in heaven, and again and again was offered pardon on condition of repentance and submission. Such efforts as only infinite love and wisdom could devise were made to convince him of his error. The spirit of discontent had never before been known in heaven. Lucifer himself did not at first see whether he was drifting. He did not understand the real nature of his feelings, but as his disaffections was proved to be without cause, Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong, that the divine claims were just, and that he, had he, ought, that he ought to acknowledge them as such before the all heaven. Had he done this, he might have saved himself and many angels. Had he not at this time fully cast, he had not at this time fully cast off the allegiance to God, though he had forsaken his position as covering cherub, yet if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom and satisfied to fulfill his place appointed him in, in God's great plan, he would have been reinstated in his office, but pride forbade him to submit. 
he persistently defended his own course, maintained that he had no need of repentance, and he fully committed himself to the great controversy against God. So already Lucifer is a unusual sinner in that he sins in light of the full glory of God. In this one paragraph, we see going from that point, the long suffering of God, the intervention, trying to come up with a remedy. And it's until the very end, he becomes a committed enemy of God. That's never happened. First of all, nobody had ever sinned like Lucifer before, and nobody had ever been a committed enemy of God. It's one thing just to sin in heaven. We can deal with that. But it's another thing to commit yourself as an enemy against God. This was also, this was, <laughs> I'm going to jump off here. Um, this was a paragraph that really shifted my paradigm when, in my thinking that um, had Lucifer just stood up and said, you know what, I'm sorry. I don't know what got a hold of me. I lied to all of you angels. I let my pride, I let my desires at once get in the way. And I want to tell all of you here today that I was wrong. And God is just and true and good. Right then, it says, he would have gone right back to his position, mums the word, nothing else dealt with, and restored. Would Jesus have had to die? Doesn't say, right? Interesting shift in our thinking. Rules different in heaven than on earth, or is the circumstances different in heaven than on earth? Yeah. Not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the unfallen world. And we go down to um, page 759.1. It says, God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one could have cast a pebble or just dropped a pebble to the earth. He could have destroyed them, no problem. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. We see God's methods here, right? God's ways of doing things. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral. Truth and love are to be the prevailing powers. I love that line. That also is, those are principles for relationships here on earth. The prevailing power of God in our relationships is truth and love, unselfish love and truth. So, you know, we, I want, we can go into the wilderness, but I do want to touch really quickly. There's just, a, my notes, by the way, I got 23 pages of notes. You can just read them. They're not written so much like a, a, a narrative, but more of a, something to refer to. But I would, I would like to look at Achan for a minute because what's interesting about this story is that there's a comparing and contrast. Almost all these stories have a counter-character. In this, in the, with Achan, who's the counter-character? Or the, the, the other character in the story? It's Rahab. Remember? Rahab's in Jericho. She saves the spies. She's, and she declares... Everybody knows, all the nations around know that your God is the one true God. And she declares her faith in the God of Israel. And she says, please save me and my family when you come to destroy Jericho. She knew it. Who was Rahab? She was a harlot. She probably ran a brothel. Some say, you can read all different kinds of things, but... But remember, Jericho was a wicked city. How wicked? About as bad as it gets. How bad does it get? Well, there's some indication when we read uh, Deuteronomy 23, and this is God speaking to Israel. He says, No Israelite woman shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any Israelite man be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a whore or the pay of a dog. The pay of a dog is a reference to the sodomites or the male prostitutes. Into the house of the Lord, or your God um, in fulfillment of any vows, etc. So, so if God is having to tell Israel, don't do this, what do you think is going on in Jericho? This is where iniquity abounds. The entire economy is wrapped around 
temple worship, prostitute worship, all that. And what else goes on with this? And I, in my notes, please go there. There's, um, I had no idea when I, when I first started this, how much human sacrifice, in this case, child sacrifice, was used in this temple worship. Can you imagine the confusion of a child being thrown in the fire, the screams, in the midst of all this other kinds of stuff going on? Talk about distorting the mind, shifting the mind, corrupting the mind. <laughs> Who knows what reality is? But the entire culture of, of Jericho was probably, find some sense of how wicked Jericho was. But God reaches in, and keep in mind, Rahab, this is all she knows. She's part of the system. This is how she makes a living for her family. She takes care of you know, her family uh, through her temple prostitution. But yet she knows in her heart that God is the one true God. She wants out. She doesn't want to be a part of it. But she, how, how hard is it to get out of that system? Well, the destruction of Jericho becomes her opportunity. So God plucks her out of Jericho and makes her an Israelite. Her first days as an Israelite are, guess what, Achan's last days. <laughs> you know, remember the process, the process that God goes, well, first of all, they fail at the, the battle of Ai. They lose like 36 men in the battle of Ai. Israel thinks, oh, we've got it. And, but God says, no, I've already not with you. I've already, it's in the text. I've already pulled away. So when you went to the battle of Ai, you went without me. So I'm not going to go with you anymore until you get rid of the accursed thing. And he puts the responsibility upon Israel, just as he does upon you and I, for what's in the heart. He puts the responsibility on society to cut the things out, to do the surgery in society. And so you've got to cut him out. And Achan had every opportunity, God's long-suffering and patient, had every opportunity to say, right at the beginning, I'm the one. But he didn't. He went through, I think, three processes to find his family and then to pinpoint him. And then Achan confesses. And like Mike pointed out, for Lucifer, there was no second chance because his heart was already hard as a rock. Achan, already hard as a rock. Couldn't change. Wouldn't change. But we see Achan and his family stoned, all that he has stoned and burned, as the surgery, God saves Israel, but we lose a leg. We lose a member. We have to cut it out. Just like God saves the universe, but we have to cut Lucifer and angels, and all those who follow him out. And so we see the surgery, God's intervention, doing the hard thing, doing the difficult thing, the thing that is the strange act of God. The strange act of God is to do the thing that... Um, is to withdraw and, and, and allow sin to take its course like that. Anyway, uh, that, so I wanted to bring that on the story. Of course, there's more in the story, plenty of notes. But um, we see this comparing and contrasting of how God is merciful. He can, he can take a harlot out of Jericho. That shows how amazing and gracious and, and loving and kind he is. And he can be patient and long-suffering with those who have hard hearts, but eventually surgery must take place in order to save Israel from becoming like Jericho. That's what was he was saving, Israel from being like Jericho. Brian? So we're thinking here that we need to be letting God do that work versus us legislating or controlling other people in order to cut those things out of our society Clarify that a little more. Unpack it. Like, at first, when you started saying that, I was thinking... I'm not always hearing what I say, so... <laughs> I went towards, when you said cutting out of our society here, yeah. those bad things that were happening in Jericho, um, that my mind went to, you know, legislating laws, controlling... Oh, got it, okay, got it. Controlling other people. And then as you continued on with what you were saying... Then I moved to seeing what you were referring to is of God taking those, cutting those things out of the world, either now or when he comes, versus us doing it by other means. Right. It's kind of like humble yourself before the Lord, because if you don't, he will. <laughs> Just add something here. Oh, I'm sorry, sister. Yeah. 
text very carefully and you read Leviticus 18, you realize that these people were filled with multiple licentious practices, sex within the family. And um, the fact that the Lord asked Israel not to keep anything from Jericho except what could be purified by fire indicates to me that they had a serious venereal disease that infected not only the people, but the children, the animals, Mm. and that this was part of this garment, and the Lord was cleansing Mm. this, um, and it was necessary, and that's why Achan's family was destroyed, because they were all infected. Um, And what's so remarkable about this is then Rahab, who clearly would have been infected, is preserved. Thank you. I mean, we, we don't know things, and we can speculate a lot of these, but that's an interesting point of view because when you have a wicked city like that they're destroying themselves from the inside out well it's very yeah. clear the lord's instructions they were not to keep anything yeah. from that city yeah, the, these things were also taken to the treasure house after they were purified yeah, after by purified fire. probably with fire yes uh Kristen. talking about god's convicting and cutting away is that kind of is that some explaining away like how ananias and sapphira why they just Died, I guess. Yeah, I actually called. Uh, so the sudden death. We, you know, we can look at Judas here. Uh, very similar type issues, but since we've got, I don't want to go any much longer here. So, but but Ananias and Sapphira. I actually called Tim and said, "How about a comment on Ananias and Sapphira?" And he just sent me his last one on Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> but it's uh, the, the in fact it's the sword of the sword of God. It's one of his blogs, and I had heard this um, some of this years ago uh, in some of our. Tim's early teachings, and it's an interesting um, perspective that you think about. Uh, let me read a couple. Tim uses uh, Revelation nineteen in his in his um, blog. There, he talks about the rest of them were killed by the sword that came out of the mouth. This is a vision of of uh, then I saw the beast and the kings, and I saw a rider and and. Out of the mouth of the rider comes this sword, the sword of truth. The sword, the, the, um, they were killed by the sword, by the word of truth. And then you go to, to Hebrews. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, we've what other... Sudden deaths are we aware of in the Bible? Uzzah. Any others? Nadam and Abihu. Nadam is Nadam. What about Hophni and Phineas? No. They were killed in battle. They were killed in battle. Nadam and Abihu. Thank you, Mike. That's right. I get my my characters mixed up. So sudden death. This is uh, when the glory of God is a consuming fire. Uh, the presence of God and even the presence of God in a heart. So the the story here implies that there's an action on on part of God there because they lied to God, correct? The story is that Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And this convicted them. So Ananias and Sapphira, um, what was it they were coveting? What was their covet? They coveted money, but something else too. Part of wealth is position, security. power, possession. What's that? Security. Security. The, Respect. The recognition. They wanted recognition. Who is the other character in the story just before Ananias and Sapphira? There's a guy named Barnabas. The Holy Spirit moved him to go and, and sell his property and to bring it to the church and give it to the church because the church was really under persecution. It was under it was some difficult times. And Barnabas, moved by the Holy Spirit, did that. And, of course, you can look at this and say, well, Ananias and Sapphira also wanted that kind of recognition and position in the church. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say they're moved by the Holy Spirit. They just, I want, I want. So they wanted this position, but they also liked money. It's a little bit of a conf- contradiction. I mean, conflict here. So if we're going to get this position, we've got to look like we're generous. But if we're going to keep our money, we've got to hold back some. <laughs> You know, I know it sounds strange, but um, even in my role, past, my role as a pastor, occasionally you had that individual said, "I'll give you this money for uh, the head eldership or something like that." You, you see the conflict? 
we want position and 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 when we, and and the, the power of money things like that um we see definitely some spiritual intervention here with Ananias and Sapphira this sudden conviction of guilt were their hearts hardened like Lucifer like Judas like like Achan were their hearts hardened already yeah so by the time, you know, they, like Judas, they were lovers of money. And it was a practice. It was a habit. We're creatures of habit. We tend to, we, you know, uh, I love the uh, Christ's object lessons where it says, um, based on the principles we become accustomed to, we act. And those actions repeated form habits. And those habits repeated form character. And by our character, our destiny for time and eternity is decided. And that's a, that's a powerful uh, idea. And it really fits our understanding of design law. It fits our understanding of why it's so important not to covet and why it's so important. I mean, why it comes to the point where God has to do surgery to cut the leg off to save the body. So I'm going to leave the rest of that hard answers for Tim to answer. But uh, that's kind of my gist for now. Um, The last section here, um, there's some great passages there that I put in there for overcoming covetousness. This is some of the reasons why God encourages us to be benevolent to the poor, to tithes and offerings, giving charitably, uh, helping the church. This keeps us kind of reminded. <laughs> How often do we pay tithes? Well, some of us once a month, some of us once a week, every seven days. And you know how, how that kind of just tunes the heart and mind into being accountable for the numbers? I'm not good with numbers, so my nature is not to go to the numbers. But if I go to the numbers, I'm much more thoughtful about where that money's going, and am I being generous to others? And so tithing and offerings keeps me in check. And so it's one, you know, God's not going to make you go to hell because you didn't pay your tithes and offerings. But you might make you go to hell if you, if you <laughs> that idea. If we might cut ourselves out by, by doing that, by hardening our hearts towards, towards God and becoming covetous. Um, I also shared some uh, some of the idea of the the importance of, the, of our memory verse, where it says, "Life is more than just having the things we want." I want to encourage you to think about what is the reason you live. Why, what's the purpose of your existence? And and just write that mission state or that purpose statement, and start thinking. Well, this is my purpose. What are my principles? What are my habits? How do I frame reality? Those kinds of things are very valuable in, I think, uh, letting our, all of our study, all of our research, all of our life experiences come in and influence how our life should be lived. Don't even think about it. Coveting. Don't even think about it. So anyway, thank you for uh, uh, giving me this privilege to, to get acquainted with you today, to sharing with you today. I hope you're blessed. So uh, let's, let's have a word, just a closing prayer. Gracious God, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today to speak on your behalf and through the dialogue that we've not only uh, glorified you and uplifted you, and we see your amazing grace and love even in these difficult stories here today. Uh, Bless each person that has come in your name. Amen.